October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Evidence History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 22, The Spirit of Washburn. Last time we discussed how some English and German-speaking Adventists had bought into the new science of eugenics, which was all about promoting what some called race hygiene, which means uh, making sure that people with supposedly defective genes didn't mix those genes with the so-called pure racists, which usually meant white people, and a very specific kind of white people, white northern European people. Now, John Harvey Kellogg was a big, big, big proponent of this idea. He sponsored a few huge conferences of the leading American and European eugenicists, and some Adventists were right on board with Kellogg. That's what we talked about last time. Now, this is a bit of an unusual episode thematically because we've been on the doorstep of the Second World War, but we're not going into the house quite yet because I want to talk about one final story in the lives of William Warren Prescott and Judson Washburn that I think is important for understanding many people's experiences in Seventh-day Adventist churches. And hopefully, hopefully, it will explain why some Seventh-day Adventists are mean, and why meanness perseveres in certain Adventist churches. Now, Prescott had his scars. I mean, you could say he earned more than a few of them. For as long as anyone could remember, he had been a favorite target of a cadre of conservative Adventists who saw him as a Trojan horse for the modernist heresy. Men like Claude Holmes and Judson Washburn and early on Stephen Haskell no doubt spoke for many other Adventists in opposing Prescott. In a letter to Holmes, Washburn bitterly denounced Leroy Froome's The Ministry magazine as the latest incarnation of Prescott's heresy. Now, Prescott, you might recall, had once edited a magazine called Protestant before conservative guns put it out of action. And those same guns now turned on the ministry, which dared, in the words of Washburn, to publish, and I quote, these pious falsehoods of Prescott forbidden by the spirit of prophecy. Well, as Prescott's views on the daily and other issues became more widely accepted in Adventism, Prescott had fewer enemies than he once did. But the enemies who stuck with him had only grown angrier with him. Now, perhaps with all of this change going on in the world, fundamentalist Adventists needed a scapegoat. Sure, Washburn had called Leroy Froome the, quote, chief channel of the Omega, end quote. He's referring to an infamous statement of Ellen White's about a final apostasy, which she called the Omega of apostasy. Froome wasn't the real problem, however. In Washburn's words, he was, quote, an egotistical, wordy upstart, end quote, And this upstart was only the chief channel of apostasy because he was seen as a disciple of Prescott. All heretical roads led to Prescott. Well, Prescott also had a tendency, to be fair, to paint a target on his own back. He had been on the wrong side of the 1888 controversy. Now, he eventually saw the light on that, didn't he? But then he teamed up with A.T. Jones 
and again was on the wrong side uh, by pushing this belief in faith healing. Prescott also refused to be a vegetarian in the uh, early 1890s, which irritated vegetarians like Kellogg. And even when Prescott did eventually become a vegetarian in 1899, he irritated more vegetarians by becoming so zealous about it. At the turn of the century, Prescott was proclaiming in the pages of the review just how pleased he was to work with John Harvey Kellogg on this new book called The Living Temple. Now, The Living Temple, of course, helped get Kellogg kicked out of the church for its panentheist views, and it forever stained Prescott in the minds of Adventists like George Ida Butler and Stephen Haskell as a closet Kellogg sympathizer. And it didn't help that Kellogg and others would go to their graves insisting that uh, that Kellogg had only taught in the living temple what they had heard Prescott teaching in the 1890s. That didn't make him look very good either. Now, no sooner had the Kellogg affair died down when Prescott was on the wrong side of that daily controversy alongside Ludwig Conradi, and we saw which way Conradi went in the end. And while that daily controversy was going on, Prescott was involved with revising the great controversy and was accused of poisoning it by changing what Ellen White had originally written. Later on, he got into it with B.G. Wilkinson about Bible translations and then published a book that seemed to doubt the Adventist interpretation of the Mark of the Beast. Criticism poured in from around the world on that one, and it certainly seems like Prescott was on the wrong side of an issue or two in every single decade. He had this nose for finding the controversy of the day and uh, and getting on the quote-unquote, doing air quotes for those who are watching, the quote-unquote wrong side of it. And yet, Prescott was widely regarded by church leaders as an elder statesman, as a premier educator, as the scholar the church needs to answer their modernist enemies. The question no doubt lingered in many members' minds. How could someone who was so wrong so often be so respected? Well, Prescott had friends in powerful places, didn't he? Daniels defended Prescott until his dying breath. But even Daniels wondered at one point if the rumors of Prescott having having embraced heresy were true. In other words, even to Prescott's powerful patron, the idea that he could become a heretic was believable. Now, I'm not suggesting that Prescott was really on the wrong side of all of these issues. You can decide that for yourself. But that he was just one of those people who were so easy to attack. Like Daniels, he was an independent thinker. Unlike Daniels, he was a poor politician. He had a hard time letting go of his critics or their criticisms. Sometimes even his friends grew exasperated with him. Froome, far from being the mindless disciple that uh, Washburn portrays him as, Froome took issue with parts of Daniels' book, The Spade in the Bible. 
And with his book manuscript taking on water under a barrage of critique and W.H. Branson pushing him to quit teaching at Emmanuel Missionary College, which is now Andrews University, Prescott complained to F.D. Nickel, editor of The Present Truth, about Nichols' glowing review of Branson's latest book. Nichols just, just threw his hands up. Quote, be merciful, I pray. What else is a man to do when the author asks him to write up a review of the book? End quote. In other words, like Prescott is getting on nickel. Like, why did you write such a nice review of, of Branson's book? You know, how can you do that? I thought you were friends with me. You know, kind of going down that road. And, and, and Nichols like, you know, good grief, man. He, he asked me to write something. What am I going to do? Just destroy his book, you know, in the in the press? It's like, I just had to say something nice about it. Get off my back. My my paraphrase of it. Not uh, Not something Nichols said. Prescott was also grieved that Adventist evangelists claim that Roman Catholics teach that Mary, not Jesus, is the mediator between God and man. Prescott had Catholic sources that taught that Jesus was the one true mediator. So can we, we stop making these unsupportable claims, guys? Can we at least just get what they believe correct? Of course, this just looked like he was soft on Catholicism in the same way Cold War Americans might be accused of being soft on communism, right? It was, it was a death sentence to be considered soft on communism. You had to pick a side. Now, Prescott was not soft on Catholicism, okay? Basically, the entire existence of his magazine, The Protestant, was, was dedicated to blunting the influence and pointing out the dangers of Roman Catholicism. But nevertheless, to be seen as soft to be seen as sympathetic to Catholicism was damning in certain Adventist circles, whether it was true or not. Prescott was reserved and careful, qualities that are easy to misunderstand as being shrewd and cagey. Prescott wanted Adventists to update their arguments, to be more intellectually honest, which seems like a code word for changing our traditional beliefs to suit the times. Prescott was an Ivy Leaguer, which obviously meant he was a snobby intellectual poisoned by modernism. There was just something about William Warren Prescott that just made fundamentalist Adventists suspicious. He just rubbed people the wrong way. All of Prescott's sacrifices, his long years of otherwise excellent service, just meant absolutely nothing to them. In, in some way, he just wasn't one of us. He kept his own counsel. He came to his own conclusions, and it was easy to find a reason to oppose him if you needed one. And that just leads me to wonder, why wasn't Prescott a heretic anyway? I mean, he was awfully close to others who did eventually leave the church. Jones, Wagner, Ballinger, Kellogg. He had confided in W.W. Fletcher as Fletcher was on his way out in Australia. He teamed up with Conradi on the daily issue. Why didn't he leave with them? Now, Prescott took an absolute beating throughout his life. I mean, his proximity to so many so-called heretics, his own prickly defensiveness, his wrong ideas, his habit of changing sides. I mean, there was just so much smoke around this man. There never quite seemed to be any fire, like nothing was obvious, nothing that stuck to him. 
So his enemies saw him as a heresy pinata. If they could just beat him enough and break him, no doubt the world would see that beneath that pious exterior, he was filled with all sorts of heresy. Right? It'd just be spilled out in front of everybody. We just need to beat him enough until he breaks. But Prescott never broke. And that just leads me to wonder, why didn't he ever leave the church? Why did he put up with this abuse? Why did he never become one of those heretics? Perhaps he came close in 1915 when he had a nervous breakdown after being chased to exhaustion by the conservative wolf pack led by Holmes and Washburn. But Prescott never broke. If he would ever leave the church, it was certain it would be over the sanctuary doctrine. No one knew exactly what Prescott believed about the sanctuary. Perhaps Prescott himself didn't really know. Perhaps after a half-dozen high-profile defections over the sanctuary doctrine, church leaders were too scared to ask what he felt about the sanctuary. In either case, Prescott never broke. Prescott's final beating came in 1939. The bully, as usual, was Judson Washburn. Prescott had finally retired in 1937 after 52 years of working for the church as if 52 years of working for the church should mean something. Well, if he thought that retirement would bring him the peace that he had sought his whole life, guess what? Nope. On October 14th, 1939, Prescott had preached a sermon at the Tacoma Park Church. In it, Prescott talked about the nature of God and even went so far as to use the T-word trinity now prescott knew two things first that the first generations of seventh-day Adventists, with the likely exception of ellen white were non-trinitarian second that adventism had been drifting toward trinitarianism as the founding generations passed away the 1931 statement of fundamental beliefs had used the word trinity to describe the Adventist belief about the godhead but don't be fooled that statement was still beyond the comfort level of many members at the time So when Prescott dropped the word Trinity in his sermon, he had to know it would ruffle some feathers. Now, Prescott wanted the church. It was his his principle, his, his chief cause throughout his life that he wanted the church to not be scared to have open and honest theological conversations. He wanted the church to feel free to discuss these things and not just have to toe the party line all the time, to have open and honest theological conversations. And maybe this was his way of starting one. That would at least explain why he printed his sermon and spread it about. And that's how Washburn got it. Now, Washburn grabbed his rhetorical shotgun, loaded it with nails, thumbtacks, expired milk, and just unloaded it, double barrel, on Prescott. Washburn was a holy warrior, protecting the faith from this heretic. He told Prescott, quote, If you had not so continually and so often criticized the teaching of Seventh-day Adventists and the spirit of prophecy, you might have been a power for good, end quote. Then he went on, mm. quote, The doctrine of the Trinity is a cruel heathen monstrosity and an impossible, absurd invention, end quote. If Prescott needed to be taken down, 
Washburn was probably one of the last people qualified to do it, okay? In temperament, if not in intellect. For instance, one of Washburn's arguments against the Trinity goes like this. Quote, if God was a Trinity, man created in his image was a Trinity, but he is not, end quote. Wait, what? What does that mean exactly? Another argument, quote, no one living can deny that where the Trinity was the supreme doctrine, there has come horrible bondage, destruction, ruin, liberty, utterly lost. Look at Italy, Spain, Russia, Hitler, an Austrian Catholic. Stalin studied for the priesthood. The world is in torment from action and reaction of the blasphemous doctrine of the Trinity. End quote. Washburn, what the haystack are you talking about, man? So all the church oppression in the Middle Ages, the Stalinist purges of Russia, Nazi Germany, and in this in World War II, ultimately are all the fault of the Trinity Doctrine? Dude, what are you talking about? <laughs> Hitler was a Catholic. Holy cow, man. <laughs> That's news to other people. Stalin studied for the priesthood. You know what Stalin, Hitler, and the other medieval popes did? They ate bread. So it stands the reason that if you eat bread, you might turn into a mass murderer. Can you even look in the mirror, Washburn, and say what you just wrote with a straight face? That's what I want to know. I mean, how... <sighs> For people who care about history... It just it's just like nails on a chalkboard. When people make arguments like that. Well, with such enemies in mind, it's no wonder that Carlisle B. Haynes once remarked that Prescott was one of the greatest men in the denomination, but unfortunately he had to contend with a lot of peanuts. Now I've I've talked about Washburn in this podcast quite a bit. He was a bully. And I've focused on that. And I want to say that there's much more to Washburn than just his bullying and his racism. He was a successful evangelist. He was a loyal worker. He sacrificed for the cause. He loved his church. He loved his daughter. And I understand today that being a bully or a racist somehow erases all of your accomplishments, everything else that you are as a human being. I don't I don't believe that should be true. I don't believe that that we should only see Washburn as a bully and a racist, I guess is what I'm getting at. I know that I haven't done a fantastic job presenting a balanced, many-sided view of Washburn. In our story that we've been telling in this podcast, he's he's pretty much had one role, and that's to cause trouble for other people that we're talking about. But I do want to mention, because we're going to be done talking about Prescott and Washburn after this episode, I do want to mention that uh, that there was more to him than that. If you want to learn more about Washburn for whatever reason, I, I do have an article in the Encyclopedia of Seventh-day Adventists. You can go find it at encyclopedia.adventist.org and uh, just search for Washburn and you can find the entry that I wrote about Washburn there. All right. But what I am taking away from Washburn's life, what grieves me as an Adventist, as a pastor, as a human being is that Washburn got away with his bullying and his racism. I mean, he pushed so hard. He was so personal in his critiques 
that he helped drive Prescott to a nervous breakdown nearly out of the church. I mean, he, he here in, in 1939, 1940, was hounding an 84-year-old man about a sermon that he had given after 50-plus after years of service. Few people, no doubt, liked those tactics, but nobody did anything about it. Prescott saw his book manuscript held up in committee because, in part, he didn't believe Vicarius Fleidei was really a title of the Pope that could add up to 666. Prescott didn't think that argument had any, any weight to it whatsoever, okay? His manuscript was held up for that. He got letters of scorn from around the world for that. But Washburn can get up and spread the conspiracy theory that basically Prescott is a closet Catholic, that he was in cahoots with Kellogg and Jones and Wagner and all the boogeymen of Adventist history, that he doesn't really believe in Ellen White, that he tried to, to sneakily change her book. And the effect of this 10-page long personal smear of Prescott was, was to out him as a false teacher and as, as, uh, as Valentin concludes, to essentially say that Prescott should no longer be seen as a Seventh-day Adventist. Washburn's screed was snatched up by leaders of the Columbia Union and passed on to their pastors. Now, the new seminary faculty howled and demanded that Washburn's credentials be removed for this attack, but nothing happened just like every other time Washburn set out to destroy somebody. What bothers me is that the spirit of Washburn was permitted to endure. And just as in the 1930s, you will find that if you challenge Adventist theology or certain traditions, even on a small point like the title of the Pope, you will get a fierce pushback. But there are people in local churches who have this spirit of Washburn, and they seem to get away with the cruelest, most vicious, most personal attacks in the name of saving the church. Now, I believe theology is important, but is it more important than kindness? Why is kindness always the first thing to go in a theological conflict? I remember somebody once saying something like, what you permit, you encourage. And while Adventists don't believe in an eternal soul, the spirit of Washburn has lived a very long time and has gone from church to church haunting people, possessing people, that in this spirit of zeal for the Lord, we are going to go on and destroy my brothers and sisters. I wish Washburn could have seen that this Trinity thing wasn't even remotely Prescott's doing, I mean, as early as 1909, Robert Hare wrote an article for uh, what is now the, the Record in Australia, and he wrote this in defense of the Trinity. Hare affirmed the timeless divinity of Jesus before wrapping it up with these words, quote, the doctrine that would make him a created being is not of God, end quote. Washburn blasted Prescott for two solid pages, 
for saying that Jehovah was merely the Old Testament name of Jesus. What would Washburn have thought if he had picked up the January 1939 issue of the record and saw this line printed therein? Quote, the word Jehovah always translated Lord printed in small capitals in the authorized version, that's the King James, may be used of any person of the Trinity and of all of them together. That article was written months before Prescott's sermon. Does it seem to have caught Washburn's notice? And did he notice that the, the India Union Tidings article, January 1918, long before Prescott's sermon, long really before he became uh, concerned with, with the, the nature of God and, and began publishing these things? Anyways, January 1918, India Union Tidings, it offered a helpful metaphor to help the members there in India understand the Trinity. No sense of any controversy in India over the Trinity. Little sense of controversy of the Trinity in Australia or England. It was largely an American thing. And it's not at all laying at the feet of Prescott. But somebody must be sacrificed on the altar of orthodoxy. Now, I know it can be hard to believe. If you're listening to this, watching this in America right now, just sit down. Hold on to something. Don't have any hot liquids near you. Don't be sitting on a balcony. Okay, I want you to be safe for this. I know it can be hard to believe. But sometimes Adventists in America can think that they are the living definition of Adventism that the entire world should follow. After all, it started here. If you're going to learn how to be an Adventist, you got to look at us. And the problem is, after 1922, most of the church lived outside of America. And it can create a bubble where the leaders of the church in Battle Creek or Washington boldly proclaim an Adventist position, which is then promptly ignored or modified elsewhere in the world. I think Washburn was in this bubble, thinking that if he could just take Prescott down, all of this Trinitarian heresy would just stop, as if, as if the whole world church was looking to Prescott for their theology. But the church was bigger than two American preachers, okay? Washburn's less-than-civil war couldn't have come at a more critical time for Adventists. Anyone who could read a newspaper could tell that Europe was on the road to war. Francis Wilcox, editor of the Review, released a book, a timely book, called Seventh-day Adventists in the Time of War. You can find it even today on the Adventist Archives website. This was a particularly helpful book, I think, because it contained official statements along with stories of how Adventists coped living in various countries during wartime. Fun fact, the book also includes a list of Adventist fundamental beliefs, which included the word Trinity. I don't think Washburn ever went at Wilcox. It was a useful and inspirational book with stories from around the world, right? How God helped this soldier keep Sabbath during wartime, how he miraculously preserved this other soldier, and, and, and it presented this image of a world church unified around this policy of non-combatancy and gave the impression that if you will just take that hard stand 
whenever your country is at war, if you'll just take that hard stand for non-combatancy, God will miraculously preserve you through it. Suffice it to say, Wilcox wrote, that the teaching of the church is that of non-combatancy. Of course, it was widely known that many Adventists in Germany during World War I had taken up arms, right? But the explanation in Wilcox's book was they didn't understand that the historic position of the church was non-combatancy. And then after the war, when leaders of the General Conference had an opportunity to sit down with Conradi and others, they explained to them the historic position of the church, and the leaders in Germany said, oh, that makes perfect sense to us now. Yeah, we agree to that, absolutely. Now, that's a curious statement, because the Seventh-day Adventist Reform Movement in Germany understood the church's historic commitment to non-combatancy perfectly well. That 2% of the church who joined the Reform Movement they understood it perfectly well. They defied their own church. They defied the German government said, we are not going to serve. So where would that 2% get that idea from if it could be credibly said that the, the leaders, that the believers in Germany didn't know about, didn't understand the church's historic commitment to non-combatancy? Lest any Adventist in the 1930s doubt the loyalty of their comrades in Germany to the Seventh-day Adventist church, and to the principles of non-combatancy, Wilcox shared a reassuring word that William Spicer had written in 1924. Quote, Our brethren in Europe love this message and are trying to keep step with their brethren in all the world. And God is wonderfully blessing their soul-winning work by the conversion of thousands every year. Yet these accusers of our brethren, probably referring to the Reformed Church there, assail them. It is surprising what disorderly elements sometimes did in their rage against their brethren. End quote. I'm not an apologist for the Reformed Church, but what's really interesting is that the Reformed members held to the traditional Adventist policy value of non-combatancy. The main church did not. And then after the war, <laughs> the General Conference president is saying, you know, I can't believe this small group, these disorderly elements who are raging against their brethren. They raged against their brethren because the brethren abandoned the historic policy of the church for non-combatancy, right? So it's it's not like, again, I'm not defending the reform movement and everything that they believe or everything that they, they did. Okay, I'm just saying on this point of non-combatancy, they were far more consistent with the Seventh-day Adventist church, with the general conference, than the bulk of Adventists in Germany during that time only after the war to be referred to as disorderly elements who were raging against their brethren, right? As if they just wanted to be mean for no reason. Spicer's words didn't have the same ring to them when they were quoted by Wilcox in 1936. In fact, they highlight the critical weakness of Wilcox's book, and that is almost all the stories that Wilcox shares are confined to the English-speaking world where it was much easier to gain acceptance as non-combatants. Even as time of war rolled off the printing presses in America, Adventists in Germany were already deeply cooperating with the Nazi regime on that road to war. If the GC was worried about that, they didn't show it. They had absolute confidence, it seems, 
in the Avidus in Germany that they would not repeat the mistakes of the First World War, that they would stand for principle, that they now studied and understood the Avidus commitment to non-combatancy. So we're good now, okay? Don't let any other Avidus around the world doubt their loyalty to this message or, or to this principle of non-combatancy. They're good. They're with it now. They're in step with us now. Nor did the General Conference seem to be worried about how believers in Russia might handle a war. The record of baptisms, membership numbers, numbers of churches, pastors, all that stuff, abruptly stopped in 1928. We have a gap of about 20 years in the records of the church there, beginning in 1928. News began leaking out of the country that conferences had been dismantled by Stalin's regime, that pastors and other members were being arrested. But would the Avenus in Russia fight? Ronald Lawson has described this problem of military service as having, on the one hand, an official position, which is non-combatancy, and this was practiced in those countries that made an accommodation for non-combatancy, but in those countries that didn't, particularly those countries with an autocratic regime. More often than not, Adventists usually bore arms and fought alongside their countrymen. What Lawson doesn't say is that even as far back as the American Civil War, some Adventists wanted to fight, whether stirred by patriotism or duty or desire to defend their families and friends. They ignored their church's official position and grabbed a gun and fought. And you don't hear many of those stories, do you? Because the church isn't going to publish those stories. And those members were perhaps wise enough not to go fight, kill people, do whatever they have to do, come home and then publish them, knowing how the church feels about that course of action. You don't hear much about those types also because after the war, a flood of books were published by the church with stories about those Adventists who heroically stood up and refused to fight. And so the Adventist public gets the impression that this is how every Seventh-day Adventist coped with the war. They all refused to fight. They were all miraculously protected by God. And of course, not all refused to fight. And not all of those who did refuse to fight were miraculously protected by God. But which publishing house is going to release a book about an Avenist who defied Hitler and then was shot the next day? There wouldn't seem to be a vindication of this policy of non-combatancy. In the West, the GC was doing their best to prepare for war. Money was sent to help Adventists in places like Russia and Greece. The GC set up an office in neutral Switzerland to maintain communication with the church in Germany, which is something they didn't have in the First World War. In England and Australia, Adventists proactively petitioned the government, declaring their position, offering the use of their sanitariums and food factories, for instance, and saying, hey, if you guys ever need to call us up, you can have uh, 14,000 medics you know, ready to go in, in hoping uh, to impress the political leaders, that Avenus were conscientious cooperators. That's a term that they preferred. The General Conference also encouraged their colleges to provide medical training for their students in the event that they are drafted, then they would be qualified, they'd be ready to go to serve as medics in the army. A great and terrible conflict was knocking on the door. For a church that had been preaching for nearly a 100 years, that the end of the world was near and that every single person needed to be ready for the apocalypse, Adventists should have been ready for this one. 
They had seen the signs for years, nations building their armies, increased military spending, angry nationalist rhetoric, the inability of the League of Nations to resolve tensions. Adventists noticed these things. They knew what they portended. They saw the signs. They began preparing. But were they ready for this Armageddon? Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist History content, then go subscribe to Adventist History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Adventist History Project. You can get access to Adventist History Extra on the website, which is AdventistHistoryProject.org, or by becoming a patron at Patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Adventist History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So... If you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.